The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. What? Eddie asked uneasily. What then, Roland? Then there's no stopping until we reach the tower. He held out his hands, watched them tremble minutely. Then he looked up at Eddie. His face was tired, but unafraid. I have never been so close. I hear all my lost friends and their lost fathers whispering to me. They whisper on the tower's every breath. Eddie got in the car and closed the door before Roland could reply. In his mind's eye, he kept seeing Roland leveling his big revolver, saw him aiming it at the kneeling figure and pulling the trigger. This was the man he called both Din and Friend. But could he say with any certainty that Roland wouldn't do the same thing to him, or Suze, or Jake? If his heart told him it would take him closer to the tower? He could not. And yet, he would go on with him. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, welcome back, Wheel of Ka. Here we are, discussing... Book seven, The Dark Tower. Holy shit. It's been a journey and a half to say the least. And here we are. Um, to catch everyone up, we did Song of Susanna last month or mm-hmm. maybe a little longer than a month. Time, you know, is starting to slip the closer we get to the, the tower here. <laughs> I see what you did there. I know, right? <laughs> so we have read the first two uh, main chunks of book seven, the dark tower, which is divided up in several little mini sections. So we read the first two sections. So this will be our first discussion on book seven, the dark tower. I mean, I just got to say when we were hanging out, I believe in your kitchen, Steve discussing doing a single episode (laughs) for all seven books, all seven books, would have been nine hours. And now here we are doing our reread. I mean, this has been an amazing project. Yeah. I I think the fan response has been tremendous. Thank you to everyone. Yes. Here we are about to roll up our sleeves and start talking the last book in the whole series. You know, one of the things when I was in, when I was in theater school, I was in acting school. One of the things that I was taught was I used to really play the end of the scene first. Like I would like already I'm, I'm upset. Like we're at the seventh book. We're at the end, but really we're at the beginning of the end. So it's, it's, it's something to look forward to. It's just that this is my common MO where I'm like, I'm sad. There is the end. There is a little bit of, of sadness here, you know? Like, I mean, I mean, we've spent, how long have we done this? Has it been a year? Has it been more than a year? It's been a year. It, it has to have been. It has to have been. Which is pretty quite an accomplishment to read this book series and talk about it and produce a podcast about it in, in a year. It's been a lot. It took me two and a half years to read the series the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this is the expedited process. So give me just your overall thoughts, man. How you feeling? Yeah, sure. How is everything going? Good. Well, I mean, I just came from writing music for the first time in a long time uh, with some really, really close friends. So that's fucking exciting. I'm pretty jacked about that. Um, I, I did a lot of reading in the last two weeks. I did a big chunk of the book in the last two weeks um, because in between the time that we recorded the last one, 
just job shit and it was crazy. You know, time was not affordable. Uh, so I found the time in the last two weeks, but I feel pretty good. Uh, I'm ex- I'm really excited to talk about this book. This, this, there a lot happens. This is a complicated one for me. The, the, the finales are always complicated for me, and this is a complicated book. And I, I use that term because I I really enjoy it. I've enjoyed reading it. I felt excitement, but I haven't felt the same like gripping excitement as I did with four, five, and six. And I'm sure there's a reason for that. I mean, King yeah. really takes his time with this one. Yeah, a lot does happen in the first two segments. Essentially, 50% of this book, a ton of plot, a ton of exposition, a ton of in-depth, slow character you know, development moving at like a very glacier pace. Oh, yeah. You hurry up and get to a point just to hear a story to that go goes nowhere. for 50 pages. <laughs> you know, and a lot of that happens... You know, when I first read this book, I thought it was the best book in the series. And, really? And I absolutely wow. loved and adored it, and yeah. I thought it was by far the strongest. And going through now the second half of it, I see in part why most of the Dark Tower aficionados rate it more on the lower end. Like, if you go to what's the best book in the Dark Tower, very few people pick out this book. Sure. But... I do think this first half offers offers a ton. This this the first half of this book is fucking bananas. I mean, yeah, it, it's all over the place. It takes place right after the end of Song of Susanna. The content is fractured in different where's and when's mm-hmm. and unites them all. There's just a magical door that pops up that helps Eddie and Roland get back to where they need to be. They're building the the Tet Corporation. <laughs> They're all together. They're finally ready to go storm and take on the breakers. And then you got to stop and listen to Ted Bredigan's entire backstory. Jesus. The man in black gets fucking killed. Yeah. In yeah. the first half of this book, Pear Callahan shoots himself rather than get devoured by vampires. There's so much to talk about. I think ultimately, even in just the first half, I don't think we're going to get to everything in my notes. No. We'll probably leave some stuff out because there's so much there. But I do think this is marching towards a very fitting end. <clears throat> Stephen King is not a happy writer. No. And his characters tend to not be happy people. No. <laughs> and you get the sense of foreboding and doom and death all over this book. Right out out of the gate, you know, Pear Callahan's noble sacrifice to save um, Jake and the Dixie Pig. Right. Mordred is born and just devours Mia with no redemption whatsoever. And we have so, I mean, we have a a tunnel that turns into a jungle, whatever your mind fears most. Yeah. And yeah. Jake and Oi have to swap consciousnesses. Like, yeah. it well, is you know, so the- all over the place. <clears throat> I mean, there's also a lot of Harry Potter references in this in this part. I mean, the 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 room you go in where you imagine your worst fears. I mean, that's straight out of there. You have this. You have the Sneeches again. There's a house elf. That's you know. There's a mechanical Dobby in this in this section. I do think that there's a lot that happens, and I think one of my qualms is is that I think to me of every book, this is the first one where I think Stephen King tries to fit just a little too much. In, um, you know, we find out about Ted Bradigan. We find out about Dinky Earnshaw. We find about, you know, 
Shimi comes back, which is the most heartwarming fucking piece of this entire series. But we also have things like we we get a lot of exposition about who the low men and the Cantoy are. We get a lot of exposition about who the breakers are. And I I enjoy that information. But like I said, as we were talking earlier, the 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 thing I have with this book is it's this constant like push and pull or like if you ever driven in a car with your grandparents where they like hit the brake and then they hit the gas and then they hit the brake and then they hit the gas. That's kind of how I felt with this book. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm waxing and waning, you know, I'm coming. I don't know. I'm going to use a lot of metaphors for the fact that I feel like I'm, it jumps all over the place. And so I feel the first two parts of the book, it was hard for me to decide who am I supposed to focus on? And and where should I put my focus? Well, I mean, to answer, man, it's about the tower. Well, of course. And as you get closer to the nexus of the universe, I mean, all sh- hell breaks yeah, loose. Yeah, and reality slips. But I start to feel like within the content, like who, to me, it's pointed in the first half of the book that the people we're supposed to focus on most, at least the first third of the first half of the book, if that makes any sense, are Eddie and Roland. I mean, Jake and Per Callahan basically disappear. And Susanna's up fucking in the Dogen. She's somewhere else. See, I don't know, man. They spend a lot of time with Jake's adventure to get to the door to reunite with Susanna in the very beginning. Well, yeah, I, I just, I feel like... We get entire reason why Jake sees the dinosaurs. He sees literally the dinosaurs oh, from yeah. the movie that scared him as oh, a no, kid. Oh, no, that that section is nuts. I just feel like King spent a lot of time with Eddie and Roland and Cullum leading up to the events that are happening now. I, I felt time moved very quick. Maybe this is a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. I felt that the action that was propelling Jake forward moved at a much quicker pace than the action that was moving Roland and Eddie forward. And so I just felt... So wait, wait, you mean forming a, a secret corporation? <laughs> is it as exciting as, no, it's not as it's, battling vampires? It's you, not you, even, you have a point. You definitely no, have no, a point. No, no, no. No, it's not even... It's not even about, okay, okay, pal. No, it's not even really... Sorry. No, no, of course. It's not even really about that. It's, it's more the, the sense that I have always felt that the pace of these books like really moved, moved really well. And, and the pace of this book feels disjointed. That's probably the best way for me to put it. I think that is a hundred percent fair because I tend to agree with you. There is a little bit of disjointedness. It does jump. You do spend a long time in certain scenes, for example, forming the Tet corporation right, and having conversations and, having like a side point where they find, you know, a slow mutant or a Shevin of Shevin. And there's this whole sequence where he salutes Roland and executes them. And you're like, great. You know? <laughs> and you're like, that's fucked up. Wow. Right. And it's not that it's uninteresting. You know, I don't, I don't want it to come off as that. It just, it feels just a little disjointed. And, and in the theme of the tower, that would make sense. If time is speeding up and realities are blending and things are happening or are being put into motion, then that would make sense, which ultimately means I'm just defending Stephen King for being brilliant. <laughs> You're <laughs> to- welcome. Totally, totally fair. I, I, I still really enjoyed every word. I was much slower 
reading this one than the other ones simply because I wanted to not read it because I felt like if I don't read it, we're not going to be done, yeah. which means we could talk about it more, which yeah. is not at all how that no, works. No, I actually was I wish- so far behind. One day this week, I got up at 4.30 in the morning and Whoa. spent about two and a half hours reading because I'm right, like- that's- that's dedication. Yes, I had to. I yeah, didn't have yeah, a choice. Yeah. I hear you. Hey. I had to. And well, I get up really early in the morning any, anyway. So that's just getting up a little extra early <laughs> from the early I already wake up. Um, let's let's kind of ground it. Let's talk about yeah. a few of the things that we've always talked about at the start of every one of well, these. Well, then I'll ask you first. How did you think, what do you think the tower is in this book? I absolutely... In, I envisioned the tower in this book very similar to the last few books that a it's still a physical place. It isn't an abstract metaphor, but what the tower really represents to me, I found myself asking, why try to destroy it? Really, what's the point in trying to bring it down? And we learn a little bit. We learned that the Cantoy, the low men think that once the tower is destroyed, they will ascend into humanity. We see Tahin and we see humans working with the breakers out of a sense, uh, a misguided sense of duty and obligation to their employer. Essentially, this might sound harsh, but like Nazis in concentration camps. No, sure. I have a job to do and I'm going to do that job. And kind of just going through it very humdrum and like, you know what? I'm not going to think about the fact that we are scraping the brains of children from the Kala who are innocent and feeding those brains to other psychics so that they can break the tower. And I found myself really asking, why bring it down? And there's a lot of reference to the Crimson King having gone insane because he's too close to the tower. And him being trapped. And him trapped and just going mad. And we see more of the villains. And the villains that are trying to bring down the tower are more concrete to me, which makes the tower more concrete because if there's villains actually trying to destroy it, then the tower is without a doubt real. Sure. And I kept wondering, why are they doing this? So we have Finley Otega and we have the dude from New Jersey, uh, Prentice. Yeah, Pimley. Who are just doing it because it's their job. And it found so bizarre to me that there's someone that can wake up every day and be like, I'm going to bring down all of reality because that's just what my job is. Mm, And I'm going to hope and pray that maybe that doesn't destroy the entire universe. And where I'm meditating long winded answer to your question, what is the tower? If the tower is a place and if it is a place that can be destroyed What's the virtue of destroying it? And I think that can only be defined by the virtue of it being there. So the tower is there. It is real. It is the nexus. It is the web by which the multiverse exists. It is all of creation. And yet it is a thing of King's imagination. Mm -hmm. And yet it is a thing that is resonated in so many other stories. I'm also doing a Lord of the Rings reread mm-hmm. for the main Midnight Myth project, and we're reading The Two Towers, and they talk about the Dark Tower, the Tower of Minas Morgul, mm-hmm. you know, where Sauron and all of his you know enemies are, are gathering, which is also based upon a poem called Roland in the Dark Tower from Medieval Times, which Laurel could speak more elo- eloquently about because she's fairly expert on it, 
And Laurel, if you just listen to the Midnight or just listen to the Wheel of Cause, my wife and she and I co-host the Midnight Myth, which, by the way, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and all that shit. Yes. Yes. And my Twitter is Derek C. Jones. One nine. Oh, no, Derek Jones. One nine eight. There's no C in my Twitter handle. Um, long winded way to say. I am fearing for the tower's survival. We get to hear the beam speak through Shimi and rejoice in that it's not being destroyed. We get to see one part of the destruction of the tower, which is to destroy the beams slowed down. And I still feel a great sense of peril that this entire thing called existence can be blinked out and it can be blinked out by those within existence. Mm. It's one thing if God Gan, if there is such a thing, waves their hand and suddenly everything is gone because God exists without outside of the universe and then can recreate another one. It's a whole other thing to be within it and to tear it down. Mm, yeah, for sure. And that's kind of where I'm at. No, I think that's great. I completely agree. The only other thing I have to add to that really is that, that there's a point in time and Roland talks about the closer I get, the farther and I feel away from the tower. And I feel the same way. I feel like now that we're on the precipice, that we're there, that we're, we're, we're watching the physical tower be damaged, I feel the least connected to it that I have in any other book. Interesting. And I, I, I think that's on purpose. I think I'm more connected and interested into the characters and, and our content. But the tower was always an interesting question mark in my brain. And then we get to the last book and I, I sort of don't think about it. You know, it's not as exciting as saving the rose in New York city. It's not as exciting as the original stories that we hear about the tower and the mystery and the fields of roses that lead up to it. All I see now. And and I don't think this is a bad thing, but all I see now is a, is a big, Black Tower with a crazy old spider demon trapped up at the top. The thing I'm interested is in is when we get there, if we get there, are we going to get there? Yeah. You know, my little abstract way of putting that, like that's the thing I'm most focused on now. And I, I, I think that's part of King's genius is that I'm now concerned with what the main characters are concerned with. And what Roland's been concerned with this entire time. And the question I keep asking myself is, what if we get there and no one's there? Or, worse off, as Eddie puts, what if we get there and it's just some other motherfucker running the show? Some bum hug. Just another asshole running the show. Yep, absolutely. You know? What if all of the quest and all of the blood and all of the sacrifice throughout all of the where's and when's and for all of the time that has slipped ultimately comes to a big nothing yeah, burger to me. That would be, that would be very disappointing, but that's where I am with the tower right now. Awesome, sure. man. Yeah. And well, or little huh, depressing, not really well, awesome. No, <laughs> but, I mean, uh. <laughs> I, I think this is a depressing book. I don't, I don't think that this book you know, I, I don't think it's meant to be a happy ending. I, I don't think, I mean, this, this tale, this journey is, feels so real in so many ways. And, and I, I think I attribute that to the way that King writes 
character. He really creates people, real fucking people. I mean, I'm so connected to Eddie. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, God, we have, yeah, we have to talk about it today. Yeah, I think, I think we should start with our character analysis. Yeah, let's go with the car. Can I start with Callahan, who is very briefly in this? Yes. And uh, I thought, I think he's a hero. And King, like you said, this isn't a happy story in many ways. In particular, the first half of this book is not happy. It's very dark. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of death. And a lot of the death is fairly unceremonious and fairly, um, you know, dark, for lack of a better term. It, You know, it's like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And someone, oh, they're fucking dead. Right. However, Callahan does get a hero's death. He faced down a vampire once and his faith broke. And in the Dixie Pig, holding the turtle, holding off the low men, he then uses and summons a cross and can hold off the vampires just long enough for Jake to, to, to escape. And they both had no illusions that walking into the Dixie Pig would mean both of their deaths. And Callahan was able to, you know what? It's not going to be both of their deaths. Callahan did something that Roland couldn't. Callahan sacrificed himself to save Jake. Yep. And Callahan did something that Roland never could. I will pick out a a quick little quote, and I love that point. The teeth of his old enemies, these ancient, ancient brothers and sisters, of a thing which had called itself Kurt Barlow, sank into him like stingers. Callahan felt them not at all. He was smiling as he pulled the trigger and escaped them for good. In his last moments... He's just like, I've done a good thing here. I have fully redeemed myself and I'm going to choose suicide rather than being poisoned and polluted by these evil creatures. Yeah, it's brilliant. And you're absolutely right. He sacrificed himself for Jake. Mm -hmm. He was able to be a hero and I think is able to have the fitting end to a very, from a broken priest to a horrific alcoholic to someone who directly or indirectly got people that he loved hurt yeah. to now going to the Cala, meeting this content, rallying his people against the wolves and finally allowing Jake to live through the Dixie pig. Mm. Beautiful ending. Oh, for absolutely. Pear. Yeah. Very fitting. And one of my favorite characters from the last book and the song of Susanna. Yeah. And I just, I thought King gave him uh, a Royal ending. Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you want to add about that? No, I pretty quick. He's not really in it for a lot. Um, Who would you like to go to next? Jake. Jake makes sense. Let us talk about Jake. (laughs) Jake does a lot. Jake runs through a room away from a fucking dinosaur, away from all of his fears. This kid, man, this kid just gets, he gets tested the whole series, tested by his father, tested by his mother, Tested by Roland, tested by the rest of the Cotet. And here he is, I, I, I would say unscathed, but that's a lie. But, you know, he's what at this point? 11, 12, you know, 12 going on 40. We see him with the, uh, with the Ariza plates, fucking shit up, killing people, cutting heads off, saving the day, being a gunslinger, using the touch in ways that most people haven't. I love the one scene where he and Roland, where Roland makes him mentally battle him. 
Oh yeah, like it's, an arm wrestle. He it's calls such a, it right. You know, like and and I, you know, Jake. Jake was one of those characters. <clears throat> excuse me. That that took a uh, took a little while to grow on me because he gets sacrificed. And, and in the first book, I'm like, well, fuck, dude. He just sacrificed a kid. The hell's wrong? What? What? But Jake has always fascinated me. Jake is the type of brave that I wanted to be at his age. And I think that's why he fascinates me. He is so brave and so emotional. God, that kid feels everything. And now, in the most fucked up reality he could be in, he's allowed to feel those things. Where in his real world with his parents, that was not an option. You know, so his situation to me is very unique, very unique. I mean, to be a child still in this world and run with this crowd. I mean, this kid, if if he were living in our world, he would be in therapy until he's dead. I mean, he is a he is as close to a gunslinger as a preteen can be. (laughs) Honestly, he really is. And. Um, and I mean, Roland sharing cigarettes with him. Yeah. Right. Because he's kind of earned the right to be like, you know what? If I could fight in these battles, I can smoke a cigarette and I can watch Benny Slightman die and I can watch pair Callahan die mm-hmm. and I can be there when Eddie dies. And I can I'm, die myself and I'll sacrifice myself. If I have to, I deserve a cigarette. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a few of the interesting things that I picked out from, from Jake in this, at least the first half, he asks Roland if he can call Roland father. That happens twice Mm -hmm. in the first half, first by Jake. And, you know, Roland is surprised. He's like, would you call me that? And he's just like, yeah. And Roland and Jake become a true, you know, father-son, telling that what does Jake call Pear Callahan? What's Pear mean? Father. So he goes from traveling with one father at the start of this book to traveling with another one being a father in a religious context, the other one being the father in a more parental context. And Jake finally in his adopted family gets to feel whole and complete. Um, You mentioned his bravery. I can't imagine any 11-year-old kid walking into a room that would project their fears back to them in a way that's 100% believable and being able to think their way through that problem by, you know... (laughs) We joked about it before. His plan, he's a psychic, right? He has psychic powers. He realizes that Oi is unaffected, and he swaps their brains so Oi can command his body. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, these mental projections would, in fact, kill him. He's a warg. I mean, (laughs) that, that was... That was, A, thinking on his toes. Absolutely. King has a quote. I'm gonna just absolutely brutalize it about how he writes. And it's just like, he likes, like you said, to create characters and he just likes to torture the shit out of them. Yeah. Put them through the hardest shit possible. Sure. And what is the the most horrible thing you can do to a kid at the end of battling actual monsters and getting out alive? Oh, what's their childhood fear? What's the thing that kept them up at nights for, you know, six months when they were kids and that they couldn't be comforted. Let's have the kid face that. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, totally amazing. And like always in every battle, he acquits himself with honor and precision and behaves as a true gunslinger. And for a child to do that, it really is amazing. And 
I also think he is one of the few characters that can really see through Roland. Absolutely. Being psychic helps. Sure. But he always says he like, he doesn't want to pry. He has this intuition with Roland where he's just like, you know, Hey Roland, can I talk to you? Like, you really don't know what's going on, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And he's able to cut through the bullshit with Roland that I don't think a lot of the other characters no. can. Yeah, I agree. And he's got Oi, who is another member, full member of the content. That's the next one we should talk about. Oi. All right. What do you got with Oi? I mean, Oi is just a constant companion. He shows up. He's a warrior. His intuition, his connection with Jake is is incredibly strong. Um, you know, have it, being a dog owner for the first time in my life, I look at Oi differently than I did the first time I read it. I was like, ah, cool. This is, you know, Jake's pet. And now when I realize, like, no, he is an active, legitimate part of the Katet, the decisions that Oi makes are important and relevant to the group. Um, but, you know, you can't help but love Oi. Oi's, Oi's the best. He's so, so devoted to Jake, so devoted to the rest of the Katet. I mean, a true loyal companion. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with Oi. The only thing that I would add is that it seems that both Oi and Jake's connection is, it, it is very psychic in its nature. And the closer they get to the tower, it seems that A, the smarter Oi becomes, yep. the more in sync and in line with the Katet he becomes, and the more integral he becomes. Which is not to say that like Oi finds Jake in the, wa- in the wastelands. Right, in Lud. Right. Oi has been an integral part of this, but now you feel that, like, I mean, Oi and Jake have swapped bodies. Right. Their bond is really, really tight, and yeah. Oi's bond with the rest of the Katet is really tight. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I just, he is just such a lovely character to add into the Katet. Yeah. Can I bring up someone not officially in the Katet, that I'd like to mention. Is that yeah, cool with you? Sure, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about John Cullum. <laughs> I do, because... Yep, of course. I think, what an interesting character. I think he's an interesting character, and I do think there's an interesting aspect to uh, an archetype which King is drawing from. John <laughs> Cullum being the person trusted with forming the Tech Co- Corporation, who's a handyman in the Turtleback Lane in this resort main town where he goes around and he fixes the houses and he knows who everyone is. And he almost like magically pops up to aid our heroes in the song of Susanna. And then when they don't know what to do and how to form the corporation, they lean on John Cullum and we get a little bit of his story that he actually does this incredibly well until he dies of cancer and that he really does everything that they have asked and more. And I think there's a part of, we have to understand, at least this is the way I understand it. And I don't know, I could be psychoanalyzing it too deeply, that Stephen King is from New England. And he likes to have these New England style everyday men as characters who are a little tough. They are not refined, and but they're good people. And at the end of the day, they can rise to become these great heroes and in this instance, you know, I mean, Cullum looks at them at one point and when they're like, you know, hey, why are you helping us? And he goes, I believe in you. What I see in your eyes is true. And that's a, a sentence that no one in any normal context would say unless they're looking at Roland and Eddie, right? 
That's the only context in which that that would seem to make sense. But it's also like it takes this everyday everyday dude who like kind of believes in the walk-ins, kind of doesn't, but he's not willing to discount them. He's not ignorant, but he's also not educated. He's not successful, but he's not a failure. He's not a drunk, but he likes beer. You know, like he is this sort of like everyday, you know, New Englander that King likes to add. And they just happen to be the right person at the right time to save the multiverse. And I just thought that was a worth worthwhile call out. Oh yeah, for sure. No, John Collins, he's incredible. He's hilarious. I mean, he's a big question mark. I, I still don't know if I trust him. You know, I don't, he, there are like a couple times that King alludes to him knowing someone that might be important to the Cotet, but then he never tells them. I feel like there's a piece of John Cullum that we don't know that King holds for himself, which I find okay. really interesting. That's totally cool. Yeah. No, I, I think Cullum's, I, I think he's nuts. I do. I think he's nuts. He's that guy. He's that guy that, like you said, that he fucking knows everybody. He's like an old neighbor I used to have growing up. He fucking knows everything about everybody. Yep. Knows where you're at. Knows knows where everybody is at every you know every turn. Ugh, nosy. Mind your business, John Cullum. John Cullum. <laughs> and uh, he refuses to learn if the Red Sox have actually won the World Series. I mean, would uh, would you want to know? I wouldn't want to know. Yeah, I mean, based on Eddie's reaction, it, it, the fact of the matter that on. you're seating someone from the future, and that's the question that you ask. Based on Eddie's reaction, though, he goes, "Nah, never mind. I'd, I'd rather not know." I'd yeah, rather, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to do a little aside on no, John. That Cullough. makes sense. I love him. Let's get back to the main content. Well, we have we have three left. Susanna, Susanna's next. We could do Susanna. How are you feeling about Susanna? Great. I finally feel like Suzanne is a fleshed out character. The first beginning of this book is nuts. They're having a, a human spider baby in Mordred, um, which I, which I will say, I'm just going to get this out of the way. Now I promised I would get this out of the way, Derek. I'll be very quick. Um, Mordred is my least favorite part of the series. Um, I hate Mordred. Okay. I said it now. The reason why I dislike him is because I feel that at this point in the story, to add a horror mutant element that's Roland's demon baby, um, it just, for me, it, didn't fur- it doesn't further the plot. And then for the fact, spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't read the book, spoiler, stop listening now, he kills the man in black unceremoniously. And now I will admit that when I reread that chapter, I was like, wow, this actually is a little more interesting than I thought it was the first time. But I'm one of those people. I'm a sucker. Like I wanted to see Roland and the man in black duke it out and have one magic and then fucking rifle battle or handgun battle. And there's magic and it's, it's crazy. And then Roland finally kills him at the steps of the tower. And instead of a spider sucks, the nutrients, and all the water out of him. And, you know, I just I just didn't think it furthered the plot. I, I, at this point in time, it just rubbed me the wrong way. I'm, I'm so, I, I think the best way to put it was, I simply don't care. I'm so focused on the goal. 
so focused on the quartet and where we're going that the low men and the cantoy and the breakers and all that stuff is fucking weird enough. It's the, we've had vampires. How much scarier do we need to get? Now we have a baby with, we have a spider with, with a baby's face on its back. I just like, there was just a part of me that was, that felt that it, it just doesn't further the plot for me. It's it, to me, it's, it's just an Arthurian reverence. Well, I let's I guess let's talk Mordred. We'll, we'll shelve Susanna if we yeah since we got there, <laughs> Sorry. which is totally okay. No, I no. didn't mean for it. I That's didn't know totally we were going to talk about it. That's totally fair. I mean, um, I hear your points and I respect. I I mean, I, if I didn't respect your opinion, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you. Thank you. I one hundred one hundred percent. Pardon me. Respect your sentiments, but I know you disagree with me. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I, it's not that I necessarily disagree because you feel the way you feel. You read a certain chapter, you read a certain character, you read developments, you have a reaction to it. Who am I to tell you that reaction is good or bad or right or wrong? Oh, sure. You know, because your reaction is, you very elegantly stated why you felt the way you felt. Also, I know I'm right. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) I will, the thing that I'll put a pin on is that um, a few a few caveats. One, we all wanted and all felt like we the climax of this story would be Roland versus the Man in Black at the like gates of the tower. Well, I fell for it, and we all do. And um, King is not that kind of a writer. He does like to subvert the expectations. He does like to keep us guessing, and he does like to throw crazy curveballs into his stories mm-hmm. that you don't expect and you don't see coming. And the death of the man in black is one of them. Sure. After, you know, all of the time slippage millennia that Roland and the man in black have been in this, what seems like a fatalistic dance to control the tower, there is a sense of being robbed of that. And Mordred is the character that robs it. Um, yes, you mentioned that it's a Arthurian reference. So Roland being the last of the Arthur Eld, the line of Eld, the line of King Arthur in the Arthurian legend uh, Mordred is the son of Arthur who rises up. However, depending upon what version of the story you're reading is also the, so Roland King Arthur is tricked into having sex with his stepsister right. and she gives birth to more to Mordred and Mordred tries to rise, tries to rise up and overthrow King Arthur right. and fails and Mordred and Arthur kill each other on the field of battle. Um, and that doesn't always, you know, it's King Arthur. He didn't really exist in a tangible sense. So these are very mythic and legendary interpretations. 
Roland being a King Arthur-like character, has Mordred, his pseudo kind of son that he never wanted, who's there now there to stop him. Um, so that's the Arthurian reference, which I think is great, because there's so much medieval Arthur in all of the Dark Tower. Um, the thing that I like about Mordred, let me pull out this quote. Yeah. And this is Mordred kind of reflecting after he was born. He's in baby form. He's hanging out in the quote-unquote real Dogen. The messenger robot's there, and he's thinking, he may tell himself he has two fathers, and there may be some truth to it, but there's no father here and no mother either. He ate his mother live, say true, ate her big, big. She was his first meal. And what choice did he have about that? He is the last miracle ever to be spawned by the still-standing dark tower, the sacred wedding of the rational and the irrational, the natural and the supernatural. And yet he is alone, and he is a hungry. Destiny might have intended him to rule a chain of universes or destroy them all, but so far he has succeeded in establishing his domain over nothing but one old domestic robot who has now gone to the clearing at the end of the path. A few things that I want to highlight there. The marriage of the rational and the irrational. These are words that King often uses to describe Roland, who is both romantic, but also he is um, also intellectual. There's this idea of a dichotomy. There are two halves to Mordred. Part Crimson King, part Roland. The perfect antagonist to put in the way between Roland and his quartet. There are moments where Mordred's like, what if they accepted me? Mm-hmm. What if they like took me in? Well, no, no, of course they can't. They never will. They never could. That to me, couch Mordred out of the horror and into the psychoanalytical. What's the first thing that he does? He eats his mother. Mm-hmm. He takes the actual nourishment from the mother. He is suffering from a reverse Oedipal complex. Instead of killing the father, so that he can have the mother. He literally has every bit of the mother Mm -hmm. and then goes on a quest to destroy the father. Inevitably, in in so many stories, is the conflict between intergenerational rage. It's a conflict we're seeing right now in America in contemporary politics. It's something that you see from Saturn devouring his own children. And now we have Mordred rising up and we have father and son and I think having that element at the end is so perfect when we remember two main members of the quartet, Jake and Eddie, how do they finally learn to address Roland as father? Mm-hmm. And here's a character who's actually his son who would rather kill him than recognize that, that I think is, is very fitting. Sure. Yeah. I think is very, very putting now. That being said, stylistically, is it a little clumsy? Yes. Yeah, weird that he's also a spider and a baby and everything? Sure. But is it any weirder to me than having a weasel-headed guard named Finley Otego? No, I, no. Think, I think that's the thing. I don't think it's weird enough. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. You know what? That's a fair point. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it, it's like, of all the weird shit we've had in this book series, like... Part baby, part spider. Re- really? That's all. That's all. That's all. That's all I have to say about Mordred. 
Shall I, we move to Susanna? Actually talk about Susanna. Let's yes. actually talk about Susanna. You started by saying Susanna felt like a very well-fleshed-out character. Yeah, I think, well, by for, for Stephen King, I do think in the last three books, especially the last two, Susanna really does take shape. In, in her decision-making, I mean, we know she's a ruthless killer. We've talked about that over and over. But she really makes some tough decisions. She she's really has to make some empathic choices during this for Mia. She starts to she starts to connect with Mia in a strange way. I like this kind of motherly figure she has over Jake. That starts to really develop in this book. And there are points in time where I ask myself, are are, are Eddie and Susanna ever gonna be reunited? And the moment where they are, oh, that scene, that scene is so touching. Yeah. So I think I think Susanna's in a good place. I mean, she's she feels like a really fleshed out warrior. Um again, I just don't think Stephen King completely knows how to write from a woman's perspective. I mean, I surely would not know how to do that uh, as a white man. <laughs> but so so there are moments where I always I always feel like I want a little bit more from Susanna. I always get a lot and then feel like I want a little bit more. And I, and I put that fair. on, I think I put that on King. Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally fair. Susanna escaping in FedEx. I was really impressed how she strategically blinds Nigel knowing the siren will go off decimates all of her captors. Oh, a yeah. few escape, but she murders most of them. And then in such a Susanna fashion, befriends the robot. And like wins the robot more or less over to her side. Now we learn that the robot's also serving Mordred and that duplicity breaks down the circuitry. Right. Because, you know, you know, robots can't lie. Now that they're lying, they suddenly, all of their circuits just start popping and he, you know, breaks down. But I thought that was a really cool moment from her to be a full-fledged gunslinger and then be like, hey, could you stop that alarm? By the way, want to like pick me up? And becomes friends with this robot that she blinded. Yeah. was really cool. And she does genuinely feel bad that she shot out his eyes. Oh, for sure. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and she was just taken over, blinded by rage. But I do agree. More of Susanna. But I, you know, more, more of Susanna is always better. Because I like the fully fleshed out. I like that she's incredibly dangerous. Right. That she can, like, sometimes slip into her dark other. All of our characters... Of the Cotet, they have a dark side, right? Roland especially. Because Susanna's dark side is literally another person that lives within her, and her ability to grapple with it really helps us understand that like she's controlled this dark side of her. Mm-hmm. It's not like Roland where it can just creep out. It's not like Eddie or Jake who who can just sometimes act with cruelty or malice, though not in this book. But any, anyway... The fact that she has this dark other and that she can now really fully control that dark other, it slips out a little bit here and there, makes her interesting, makes her dangerous to her enemies, compassionate to her friends. And I mean, she like sets a whole bunch of lasers on interval and just starts blasting them, confusing the hell out of a whole bunch of people riding on her electric uh, scooter and just gunning people down with a machine gun was just like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. I love the bit where it's saying that, you know, she realizes it's not really time yet, and then she's like, she doesn't care. Her yep. blood's up, and she's just she That's wants right. to kill. That's right. <laughs> it's just like, she's dangerous. I love it. 
and from peace activist to you know schizophrenic to gunslinger extraordinaire. I mean, we've said it before. She is the best gunslinger not named Roland. Hands down. And I really love it. Um, should we go to Eddie or Jake? Or I'm sorry, Eddie or Roland next? Well. Should we save Eddie for last? Yeah. You want to save Eddie for last? Yeah. So let's talk a little Roland. Let's talk Roland. Well. Uh, how are you feeling about Roland? Hey, Roland's getting old. Uh, Roland is, is sh- showing signs that he is a direct manifestation of King. Um. You know, we find out about the the, car, the van accident and that it's going to kill Stephen King and that that Roland is literally feeling the effects from that, um, which I which I thought was wild. You know, all that time, I just thought it was the twist. I thought it was arthritis, you know, but here it is. Actually, he's the living manifestation of Stephen King's pain, which is insane, at least in this in in this context. Do you think that means is King saying that he and Roland are one or that King's pain goes from King into like, he chooses to write the pain into Roland to punish him. Um, no, I, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. I think it's, I think it's both. I think the fact that Stephen King between of all the people in the quartet, I think King breaks himself up between Roland, Eddie and Jake. There are pieces of him that manifest in all three of these characters. And I think Roland is that cowboy, that gunslinger, that, that really that dangerous person that Stephen King in some way, if I'm going to psychoanalyze, I think wants to be maybe wants to reach out and be, and is just not. So he creates this character in which I mean, does suffer and is directly connected to Stephen King's soul. If, if the, if, if the tower, if everything serves the beam, the beam is essentially Stephen King. I mean, all things serve the tower. He has to be the tower. There would be no tower without him. There'd be no Roland without him. There'd be no Eddie. There'd be no Jake. So inevitably, King is a piece of all of these folks. I think Roland is the one he spent the most time with. And so therefore, as King gets older, Roland gets older, they mirror each other. I don't think they're one but I think they mirror each other. It's interesting to me that Roland and Jake have that mental, uh, you know, touch arm wrestle, shine arm wrestle. If you want to reference another Stephen King work and in it, Jake uncovers that Roland is mad at King. And I've thought a lot about that. He is mad at King and he calls King a coward. And he like Stephen King writes his Arguably greatest hero at, at certainly the most important if all of King's work feeds into the Dark Tower, which it does. His like most important hero, the one that he has been writing for, you know, decades at this point, and has that character hate him. Is that just King hating himself? Is there just self-loathing there? He has his main character call him lazy. I mean, how would you feel if the person who created you kept you alive for thousands upon thousands of years to do the same thing over and over again? I would be a little angry. I'd be angry that I found out that, wait, things could have gone differently. I could have been with Susan Delgado the whole time. Yeah, but does King really... So in a literal sense... 
King writes the story. Right. And I think we could we could assume that is metaphysically true. There is Stephen King. He wrote these books. He sat down and wrote them. He wrote them over a series of decades. He has a car accident in which he almost dies, and he thinks, I can't die without finishing this. So he finishes The Dark Tower because he realizes at for the first time in his life, oh, my God, I'm going to die sometime. I can't leave this work unfinished, so he finishes The Tower. Then there is King the character and Roland the character. And I don't know if I should separate the two, but it feels like I should. I should separate King the actual writer and King the character that's in The Dark Tower. King the character that's in The Dark Tower, who may be King in reality, but let's assume they're different for the sake of my point, is not actually writing the story it is just his job to put it on paper so that it happens. He isn't actually robbing these characters of their choices. King admits in the previous book when Roland confronts him that like, yeah, dude, I didn't make you drop Jake. Like, it scared me. You just dropped Jake. Mm -hmm. And while we can certainly read this as King commenting on his own psychology, on the psychology of being an author, on a literal level, the character King is telling us he's not really making these choices. He's not really making Roland suffer. Because all things serve the tower. In which case, why then are Roland and King linked? That's a great question. Yeah, I don't know. It just came, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know That's either. That's a great question. Let's ask Twitter. Why I mean, maybe, are Roland and King linked? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be the fact that they, they mirror each other in different realities and different in different times. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. It has to be that they're the same. Sure. At least then, then there's King in reality. God, this shit gets so hard. Who's writing the book, like the King in our where and when right. the where and when of the wheel of Cobb podcast, who's writing it, who presumably is not actually creating these cre these characters. But we don't really know that in the way that I know I'm sitting in a chair right, right now. I think that's the point. I mean, it is an interesting thought to think when you write a story and you are creating characters and you say the best thing he does is he creates a character. Mm -hmm. In a certain respect, he is spinning from the tower and creating life. And not in a like divine being sense because King admits that he's powerless in this. You know, like he didn't make Roland drop the kid. Roland dropped the kid. He just channeled that. And it is, uh, the, there's nothing like the Dark Tower. No, I agree. All right. <sighs> Shall we move to Eddie? Yes. Let us talk Eddie. Eddie Dean of New York. You um, take the lead here, Steve. Oh, this, is your, this is your boy here. So, uh, again, spoiler alert. Uh, we come to... The very first time that the original quartet is broken. And we see a foreshadowing with, with Per Callahan that we can see that the quartet can break. Uh, but Eddie Dean is shot in the eye by Pimley Prentice as he's fucking dying and takes Eddie by surprise. And the way that we find out that it's Eddie, because it's been foreshadowed for chapters. We've talked about 
I mean, King, for the very first time in this book, speaks to us directly. And one of the times he does it, he says, look, one of one of these people is going to die. Who it is, we don't know yet. So we already have the expectation. The first time I read it, I was completely shocked. Shocked. I was on a bus and I was sobbing. Because you find out when, uh, when Susanna screams his name and he's dead in her arms. And the person that I think, the character that has the biggest arc, that changes the most, that is the person that becomes their truest self in this series, is Eddie Dean. He starts off as a snot-nosed 22-year-old junkie on fucking heroin. He gets pulled through a door, naked, no clothes, fights in a mob fight, in a gunfight with Roland, rolling on glass, taking people out, making huge decisions, talking his way out of everything, saves Roland on the fucking beach, meets, meets his, for, his forever soulmate, and really becomes, you know, in, in the wastelands when he's on, when he's on Blaine the Mono and he, 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 you know, figures out the riddle and he becomes the hero. And we lose him in, in such a dramatic and unassuming fashion. Yeah, it'd be almost easier if he had a pair Callahan style end where he could go out in a blaze of glory saving his entire, you know, content so they can get to the next phase. But the battle was over. They had won the battle. Yep. The battle of Algo Ciento was successful. They had succeeded admirably. They are embracing each other and hugging each other. And a dying prison guard raises with his last breaths a pistol and shoots Eddie in the head. Right through the eye. There is a, a quote I'd like to pick out, and this is about the from the chapter Ka Shumei, which I had forgotten that term. Mm-hmm. And this is how they define this term in this chapter. And now he recognized the feeling that had crept among them for what it most certainly was. Not worry or weariness, but Ka Shumei. There's no real translation for that related term, but it meant an a sense of an approaching break in one's cotet. I've been in several cotets in my life, and I've seen a lot of them break. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really hard. Yeah. And I've seen a lot break for a lot of reasons, but the reason that is always the difficult, most difficult to bear for me has been the passing of a Katet member. Mm-hmm. And it's never the same. And King doesn't mince words. Eddie's death ends the Katet. That there's no chance that Jake, Susanna, and Roland, and Oi pick this up and form a new Katet. They are no longer one. As soon as Eddie dies, that is the end of the Katet. And it puts the entire sense of the journey in jeopardy 
because you got the feeling that as long as these characters who could be scattered through multiple where's and when's can find themselves together, who can sense each other, who've gone toe dash together, who've defeated guardians of the beam and psychotic trains together, who can tell each other stories and be transported into each other's pasts together, come back together. Literally this group of people taught Roland it's okay to feel again. Mm-hmm. The only reason I have made my way through this story, I would have thrown it down in disgust a long time ago if it wasn't for Roland's love, starting with Eddie. With Eddie. His ability to feel for his friends again is his redeeming characteristic that allows me to go on the journey and see him as more than just a ruthless, brutal, sociopathic murderer. It's the love of his friends that redeems him. And when that breaks, it is fucking tragic. Mm-hmm. And it's just one bullet from one enemy. And it reminds me, I, a member of my family, I won't say their name because they haven't given me their permission, who um, recently has come back from Afghanistan after being there off and on for a long time in the U.S. military mm-hmm. and told me a story that if you clear a room after a a fight and you assume the enemy is dead, you have to go into that room and put a bullet in every corpse. And that's to make sure that there isn't someone alive or someone pretending to be dead so that they can kill one of you. And the one strategic error that you see of this quartet is they hug each other before they go through the business of making sure they've finished off their enemies. Yeah. And that one mistake cost Eddie his life and destroys this quartet for forever. And I'm not going to lie, friends, uh, people listening, I cried. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely man-teared. Oh, you should have seen me on the bus. But the first time I read this, a, w- a woman next to me asked if I was okay. And and I was like, yeah, I just, I just lost somebody. And they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, no, no, no. I don't mean it in the book. It's a character in the book. And then she must have thought I was insane. But, but I mean, I think the, the reason why this is the most emotional loss for me in this book is just because of my connection to Eddie. Eddie, I, I feel very similar to him in my own life. I mean, he was, he was fucking funny. And he, he made, he, I don't know, he brought such, such humanity to the quartet. To me, he, he was the most relatable one. Also, the content has never lost since they've formed. They have never lost till the, right till the very end. <laughs> and even though King is literally telling us, by the way, someone's going to die now. You're like, no, 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 they're invincible. Like Jake jumped through a house that tried to eat him. Right. You know, like nothing's going to happen now. Right. Jake's already died twice in this narrative. He got pushed by, by the pusher, um, I'm blanking on his name, Jack Mort. Mm-hmm. Um, that might not be right because it's been a while. It is right. And then, oh, wow, points to me. Then gets killed by Roland. He gets right. dropped by Roland. Right. I'm like, at this point in time, nothing's happening. They're all making it to the tower. Even though in like neon signs, King's like, by the way, this is going to get really fucking sad really fucking quickly. There's an entire chapter called Ka Shume, mm. summed up in the breaking of the Katet. 
every character is depressed because they feel that one of them, if not all of them, are going to die. And yet here I am reading it the second time. Oh, yeah. The second time. Oh, yeah. Being like, nah, it's not going to happen. Right. It's not. This, these, these group of characters are invincible, believing again that Eddie is not going to die. Well, and you know it, and you don't want it to happen. You know, even, even it's, it's ignorance is bliss. Even reading it a second time. It Be- is. Because up until this point, so much shit is happening. And they're winning. They're picking. They're, they are winning this battle. And then you're right. They put their guard down for a second. And it cost Eddie his life. You know, they don't just win the battle. They dominate. Oh, yeah. You know, these group of guardians of the breakers had no idea what was coming. You know, like, uh, Otega and Prentice aren't aren't sleeping well. They sense something's wrong, but they're convincing themselves. It's just the nerves of, of winning. They're like, ah, it's just our nerves. Right. Things are going great, and that just makes us nervous. Meanwhile, they have the most badass warriors ever who completely surprise and completely um, spring a trap on them and slaughter them all. And like three of them take on like 60 (laughs) and win. It's amazing how that this, that this group of warriors is able to do that. And there is unlike the battle with the wolves, unlike the battle with Blaine, unlike the battle with the guardian Shardik, this one breaks the quartet. Fuck you, Pim Lee Prentice. That's all I have to say. He's from New Jersey. <laughs> He's from New Jersey. Anybody who knows, you know, from from southeastern Pennsylvania, understands what I'm, I'm speaking about. Moving right along, we have hit the whole quartet. Would you like to spend a little bit of time talking about Algo Ciento? A few of the characters there. We meet a lot of them. Oh yeah, we have to talk about Ted and Dinky and and, and Shimi. We just said that at the same time, and that was not scripted, ladies and gentlemen. That was not scripted. We definitely should talk about Shimi and talk about how this whole prison system works. I mean, it works by the low men presumably find people with psychic ability. They entice them to apply for a job. They tell them that the job will be with a lot of travel and give them ungodly large amounts of money. The people that are um, the psychics, they think that they are probably working for the government, and finally someone wants to put their psychic skills to use. Then at gunpoint, they get pushed through a door. They end up in Algo Ciento in Thunderclap, and there they break. One of the most interesting quotes I found in why this prison works, and I thought this was fascinating the second time, what makes this prison work? You have all of these super-powered psychics, a handful of guards working together to destroy the universe. Ted Bradigan says that there's nothing talent wants more than to be used. You have people with psychic abilities hiding them, finally being able to use them and use them openly. And that sort of, that narcissistic sense of self of like, I have a talent, it must be used. If it's not being used, it's being wasted. Finally being able to be used, allow people that essentially get kidnapped, brought to another dimension, and then are set to use their minds to to destroy the universe while being fed the brains of children. That's worth noting in defense of breakers. Most of them don't know that's exactly what they're doing. 
but they've accepted their fate. Mm-hmm. There's this great bit where the breakers after the battle are asking Roland, like, what are your plans for us? What should we do? And Roland is disgusted by them. And he says, you know what? You could stay here and eat the food in Algo Ciento to the rest of your, till the rest of your days. I recommend you go to the, the Calas and you try for redemption. It won't be easy. You will have to work. You will have to toil, but you'll be redeemed. And Ted at one point goes, hey, Roland, like I told you, like a lot of these people didn't really know what was going on. Like, why are you being such a dick, essentially? Right. And Roland goes, no, I understood really well. That's why they're all alive. Because otherwise, he would have killed them all. Oh, absolutely. You know? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And I thought that was amazing. And really was just like, yeah, Roland is showing them mercy and offering them redemption. Roland hasn't done that to anyone who stood in his way. Nope. Ever. Nope. And it's because of Ted telling the story, giving this whole picture, letting us know how it works. I mentioned earlier in the pod that it kind of feels like a Nazi concentration camp. Mm -hmm. How does all of this evil actually work? How do you institutionalize evil? You make it normal. You make it part of every day. You make Mm -hmm. the evil just another thing that you all see and do, you know, and Algo Ciento feels like a normal, thriving community, and that's what makes it so evil. Once you've normalized it, once you've made it acceptable, mm-hmm. once you're like, I get good food, I get sex, breaking is divine. I love breaking. Even the people who aren't psychics who walk in the room of the breakers are elevated by the sense of the breaking. Right. It makes them feel better. That's how great breaking is, and that's how you rationalize And that's how you come to live in a world with evil. You normalize it. It just becomes part of the everyday experience. And I imagine, and this, you know, may or may not be historically accurate. I imagine that's what it had to have been like in Nazi Germany. I imagine that there are plenty of places in the world with gross injustice. And once it becomes normalized, once it becomes algo siento, once you have nicknames for all of the buildings, you know, it just takes a one cantoy to with a loose hat with an itchy scalp for a psychic to finally realize how evil this place already is. But if they're being honest, the breakers are being honest, and Ted is, they all really knew it was really deeply fucked. Yeah. They all knew it was wrong. Ted didn't know that they were eating the brains of children, but he asks, like, are we cannibals? Cause he just like, he suspects that they are, sure, you sure. know, like, and so they all really know. And I thought that was really fascinating. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, Ted Bradigan, it's interesting. I, I knew him from hearts in Atlantis. I, I haven't read the book. I know it's like a little a series of short stories, but I have seen the film. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting again, that we have this like sort of pair Callahan type, um, that gets introduced and we find out, we, we spend a lot of time finding out his story about him, you know, trying to get into, into the U S uh, or excuse me, the uh, armed forces in world war one as a, as a telepath and just being denied left and right. And then be, being stolen, leaving, uh, leaving Algo Santo and, and, and coming to Connecticut in what it was 1945 or whatever it was and being caught and sent back. 
So I, I thought that part of the story was interesting. Again, you know, I, I'm very weird. When we start meeting lead main characters at the end of a story, it's hard for me to just completely get on board with them. Bradigan was uh, super interesting. I mean, the guy is the guy is like the psychic, you know, the, I mean, he's unreal. The talents that he has, what he's able to do. Um, you, you've got Dinky. Is it Earnshaw? I think that's his last name. Dinky Earnshaw. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have Shimi. The teleporter. Shimi Ruiz. Shimi can teleport. Can I ask you a question? Why do you think it is that the one thing that's not allowed in this world is teleportation? Because if you can teleport, you can escape. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. And it's a prison. And that's that's it. Right. And that's what I was, you know, the impression that I was under. It's a prison. A teleporter means that you could escape. It means if you can escape, you can tell people what's happening. Right. It means that the secret is out. So if all of the psychic abilities, teleportation in a prison is the worst one. It's a concentration camp for psychics. It -hmm. just happens to have milkshakes and sex spots and the best wine ever. Right. Right. It's a very luxurious concentration camp, but it still is a place to round up psychics and, Underneath the evil is the food for the people that get the luxury are the brains of the innocent children. Like it's so horribly unjust from bottom to top. It is, it is evil, right? And and, and absolutely it is. And you know, with Shimi, it's so heartwarming that he comes back, that he aids Roland again. There's the scene where, it even chokes Susanna up where like where they hug for the again and Roland explains to him like none of this was your fault. None of this is would ever have been your fault. And Shimi, look, he's he's got to be a few thousand years old. He's the same age as Roland. Here he is out of nowhere. Shimi Ruiz. He's shown up and we come to find out that he's the most powerful one this entire time. Shimi unsuspecting Shimi. He could puncture holes in reality with his mind and go to other wheres and whens. Right. Which is, which is absolutely insane and fitting that he would come back and be one of the people that aids Roland in getting closer to the tower. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I love that Shimi returns. I really do. Shimi was such a good character from wizard and glass. And the idea that Roland's past caught up to him and it's the best part of his past right not uh, the man in black nope not jonas not any of these other villains that he has like had to fight against it's shimi one of his great friends and helpers someone that was instrumental in the good parts of his childhood Mm -hmm. is there at the very end it is tragic that we are told we haven't heard it yet in the first half of this book that Shimi stepped on a piece of glass that's going to kill him. And he is so excited that the beam transmits to him that it's okay, that he's not seeking medical attention. Eddie is dying. All of the breakers are in like chaos and they're angry and enraged. And no one, even Shimi seems to notice that he has a mortal wound on his foot. Mm. And that is just another piece of sort of blind bad luck tragedy that befalls these great characters. And it's another one of Roland's people that die in order for him to get closer to the tower. Yep. And at the end, you know, we, 
We've asked this question a lot. Roland asks this question a lot. To possess the tower, at what cost? And to what cost is it worth getting your goals? Well, and even Eddie, up until the end here, as we read in, in the opening credits, even Eddie is like, would he really give me or Suze or Jake up to get to the tower? Eddie thinks, yeah. And I'm going to follow him anyway. Yeah. That's nuts. That That is that is pure. I mean, to me, it's pure dedication. It's a deep love. But also, what the fuck does that feel like? But think of any soldier who has followed any leader into combat, knowing that they themselves may not make it through the end of the battle, but they'll do their part. Why would anyone be willing to lay down their life for anything? What's significant at this point is, unlike previous points in the story where the characters are chess pieces, right, that Roland uses to get to the tower, these are people saying, you know what? I trust him. I'll be his chess piece. I'm choosing to follow him, knowing he'll use me as a chess piece like the Din, like a general, like our father. But it's my choice rather than him just doing it without choice. I mean, literally Roland like takes over Eddie and Susanna's minds and gives and robs them of any sense of free will or choice. Mm-hmm. Now we're at the point where do you think Roland would take over Eddie's mind? Never at this point. And it does lead to death. Like leading these people to the dark tower is and would and always shall lead to death. And it's sad and it's tragic. And halfway through, we don't know where it'll go from here. Mm-hmm. Any other final thoughts or points? No, I don't think so. We have the other half of this book. Yeah. Um, everyone out there, we are reaching the end of the Dark Tower. So we are going to spend the next few weeks, probably, you know, three to five. We're going to finish the book and then we're going to do a podcast about it. At the end of that we will be at the end of the Dark Tower. Yeah, yeah, we will. The Wheel of Ka has run completely. It is back where it began without Dark Tower to read. Mm. Steve and I have been thinking of many different ways to continue this project. We'd like to hear from you. Like, what would you like next from the Wheel of Ka? Yes. Would you like more Wheel of Ka yes. after the Dark Tower? Please. What are your thoughts? We've had some thoughts, but we'd like to have that conversation with you. So hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. And till uh, we meet again, before we meet at the clearing at the end of the path, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.